This is the Piston Broke Podcast, Episode 7. Welcome to Piston Broke, the podcast where we discuss all things motoring with the people who make it happen. Buckle up and let's get started. Here's your hosts, Darren House and Barry Brown. G'day, Baz. Another great show coming up today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting into this one, Daz. We're going to talk about Gary Cooper and his legendary brand, Elfin Sports Cars, prompted by a new book that's just been released. Joining us today, we have author and muttering journalist David Dowsing. Darren Barry, good to be with you. Also, we have Bill Hemming, who is the curator of the Elfin Sports Car, or the Elfin Heritage Centre, I should say, and an Elfin racer. Yeah, hi guys. Racing's a strange word to use with me. I drive them as rapidly as I can. And multiple Australian champion driver, John Bow. Yes, uh, thank you, mate, for having me uh, on this podcast, because I've had a very long association with Elf. I'm very fond of the Elfin name and the and the people that continue to carry that legendary car name. David, we might start with you. You never met Gary, but you've spoken to a lot of people that have in writing this book. Um, tell us a bit about the man. Uh, well, you're right, Darren. I uh, I'm uh, a little little younger than Bill and John, and I. Uh, I, I never met Gary, and in fact, I, I grew up with almost no knowledge of Alfin or Gary Cooper at all. Where it sort of started for me was uh, early on in my motor journalism career, I was covering the 2004 Melbourne International Motor Show, and I was standing at the Holden stand, and it was quite early in the morning, I had a cup of coffee, and I'm standing there, and there's a ute come out, and there's a Commodore sedan come out. And then after a little while, Larry Perkins drives onto the stand in this little sports car and everybody starts talking about Elfin. And the world for a while went sort of Elfin crazy because uh, he was this amazing sort of thousand kilo uh, sports car with a big V8 in it and amazing performance. And um, a lot of people were talking about Elfin at the time. And that was not the first time I'd ever heard of Elfin, but it was sort of now that I sit here and think about it, it was kind of the first time that I did a lot of thinking about Elfin. And what happened after that is uh, I started doing my own investigation, started writing stories about Elfin. I met Bill Hemming and Nick Kovach, who owned Elfin at the time. And I learnt, I've sort of learnt about Elfin in, in the rearview mirror. I've learnt about it from a historical point of view, not from a contemporary point of view. Bill, I've known you for a long time, and I I know historically um, your roots weren't with Elfin. What brought you to uh, get involved with Elfin in the depth that you are at the moment? Well, a bit like David, I'm a a late convert to Elfin as well. Uh, In fact, I was overseas when um, in the heydays of Elfin racing in the 70s, late 60s and 70s. Uh, But when I came back to Australia, I started historic racing in minis and jaguars and stuff like that. And I I was at a historic racing register annual dinner and they gave away the new Barry Catford book, Elfin Australia's Sports Cars, right? And I I read this book and um, I just couldn't believe that 
you know, this guy from Adelaide did as much as he did and built up, you know, the second biggest racing car manufacturer in the world at one stage and uh, so many different models and so many different things. And um, I was so enamored, I uh, actually went out and bought a little Elfin Streamliner, 1960 Elfin Streamliner, and started racing that in historic racing and just fell in love with it. And um, I was like the man from Remington who liked the shaver so much he bought the company. So uh, when the company came up for sale uh, from Murray Richards, who owned it at that stage in the 90s uh, until he got cancer, a friend of mine, Nick Kovach, and I, we uh, bought the company from him. And uh, then I really started learning about Gary Cooper and uh, just how, how, how one person did as much as he did. I used to be a Norman Lindsay fan. used to look at all his sculptures and his paintings and his books and his nude models and everything, and uh, that got me sucked in. Well, he was, he was another example of one man doing too much in a short life. And so I just got uh, totally hooked and obsessive, I guess, about the whole thing. From that point, was it more the the man and his accomplishments or was it the driving and drivability of the car that really piqued your attention? No, it started with the man and his accomplishments, um, which then made me look at the cars. And uh, frankly, I think until, yeah, certainly the, the late 70s, Elfins were always gorgeous looking things, right? And they all always performed well. They won all the championships that they went into from Formula Junior through to the 5000s and that. Um, so they're obviously terrific cars, you know, built by someone with no engineering background, but uh, someone who just wanted to go racing himself and did it. And that just totally appealed to me. And um, when I started driving them, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a mug weekend driver, but uh, I just loved it. And uh, I was getting out of my XK150 Jaguar that I was racing at the time into the Streamliner. And it was like going on holidays. It was <laughs> so nice and easy and smooth. I found that with uh, most of the models that I've I've raced. JB, you've got a different perspective. You started your race career in an Elfin, and then you went to work very closely with Gary over the years. Yes, I, I uh, started being involved with Elfin as a kid. Really, my dad bought a, a Catalina, which was a early like a Formula Junior, but it had a 1500cc Ford engine. He bought it off Brian Sampson back in the mid-60s, I guess. And so Dad was quite friendly with Gary over that period of time. He he was, uh, you know, he used to ring up Gary every few days and they'd chew the fat. And then he bought a new Elfin 600 in 1970. And eventually when I decided that I wanted to race, we Dad and I bought together a, a Elfin Formula V. So from that point on, I got to know him very well. And uh, I think I've raced, owned and raced seven, I think, seven different Elfin models. So I was very associated with him right up until the time of his very early death. He gave me my first chance to race outside Tasmania, my home state. And quite honestly, without him, I would still be living in Devonport and, <laughs> you know, racing on Sundays. So so he was very pivotal in my, my racing life and my family's racing life, to be honest. What's your lasting memory of Gary? Well, he's a very quiet guy. You know, he, uh, I used to go over there. Um, once I started driving his car, like he gave me a chance to drive the 5000 when I'd only driven a, a Formula 3 car. So I went from 130 horsepower to, say, 500 horsepower. 
So that got my attention. And I used to go over there and uh, stay at his house, you know. So he was he was like all those guys that are very clever but not educated clever. You know, he would draw things on the back of a bit of paper and go to the factory the next day and, and make them, you know, with the guys that he had working for him. It was, just, it was a different era, you know. There was no such thing as computers and CAD analysis and all that sort of stuff. It was all in his head. So as he... You know, I, I ultimately had a f- couple of new Elfin Formula 2 cars that I owned the chassis and he owned the engine and he ran them out of the factory. So they were works, works cars, but he would build them, design them. He'd have a rough idea, but he'd build them on the go, on the run. You know, there wasn't hundreds of working drawings or anything. He'd, he'd just make it up as he went. He was a very, very clever guy. John, um, you had a period of success with the Elfin vehicles, and I know that uh, you probably had a, a view on how they should run and handle and so on, and yet I've heard intuitive and all as uh, Gary was that he was also quite opinionated in the way that uh, the vehicles would be built and p- potentially improved. What were your experiences um, in, in that, and is is that view correct, or is it inappropriate to hold it no no it's it's he's he was quite a strong character you know but he was just quiet and it was early days in my racing life really so you know i i learned a lot of things from him i I didn't know that much about anything you know as a young guy all you do is get in and drive so he you know taught me lots about the the chassis dynamics and you know the, the handling and the whole thing but i used to always you know follow his lead rather than ever I never had a crossword with him ever about anything um and I was very appreciative of, of the fact that he'd given me this opportunity um so I think he it, the reason that came about firstly is he knew my dad well uh John McCormick drove with him in Ansett Team Elfin for a long time and John McCormick was a when I was a kid a, a family friend um, and I had a little Elfin 700 Formula 3 car with a Ford engine. And the kings of Formula 3 back in those days, this is in the late 70s, late-ish 70s, were uh, the, the cheetah cars of Brian Sheed, Brian Sampson, Peter McGrow. There was, Brian Sheed had quite a good little business going, and they were the kings. You know, they won everything. They brought them over to Baskerville Raceway in the south one year when I had this little Elfin. And Elfin at that stage wasn't fashionable in Formula 3. There was only a couple of Elfin 700s made. Anyway, I was miles faster than them, so that got their attention, and I think it got Gary's attention as well. So that's why I think, without ever asking him, why he sort of took me on as a bit of a, a, bit of a project. So as I said earlier, without him, you know, I'd, uh, I would have been buried in Tasmanian racing, so... I'm still very grateful. This is a long time ago. So, Bill, let's uh, talk about the book, Elfin, The Spirit of Speed. Um, what made you go into book publishing where you're not losing enough money going motor racing? Well, I, I, I blame David Dowsey for this because uh, he came and said, let's uh, let's write a book. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea at the time. And um, the two-year project that we had for a 250-page coffee table book turned into five years and 700 pages of a book that weighs six kilos and it's going to cost me 30 bucks to mail out. So uh, it was a good idea at the time. Uh, now that I've seen the finished product, it's finally here. 
um, it's 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 fantastic. It's uh, exceeded my expectations in terms of presentation and and what the whole thing is. But the best thing about the book was um, getting involved with the people in the book. Uh, yeah, people like John and um, uh, some of the old workers at the Olfen factory. That's been fantastic. Um, and, and very fortuitous, actually, because since we started the project, uh, about six of those people have all uh, left this earth, right? So uh, it was just terrific. Um, people like John Webb, who was the uh, original bodybuilder and co-stylist of most of the Elfins in the 60s. I went to see him last year and um, to get some tools and that from him for a special display thing that we're doing, which he happily gave me. And uh, uh, two hours after I said goodbye to him, he, he uh, had a heart attack and died. Yeah, so um, Gary's wife, Lorraine, who was an absolutely you know, wonderful, wonderful lady. You know, uh, yeah, to the point I was waiting for my wife to have a fatal accident so I could go over and marry her. Yeah, uh, she unfortunately died about three years ago, and uh, uh, but we did we did manage to have quite a few uh, conversations with her, and she was just fantastic. So we've we've lost yeah you know, Brian Reed who started the Alpha Owner and Drivers Club. He died a couple of years ago. So so um, thank God um, David uh, started this project going with me and um, I got to meet these people and got involved with them and it was an absolute pleasure because I haven't, uh, like David, I never met Gary Cooper um, but uh, getting involved with the people who had met him and spoke about him, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a great thing missing out of my life that I never met him. He sounds like a fantastic person. I understand that one of the, the major features of this book is that it's given the the world access to images and material that hasn't previously been available to the public. Would you care to expand on that a little? Yes, I think um, uh, it's terrific stuff that's been unearthed from there. Uh, there was also a lot of stuff that was unearthed that we couldn't get access to, which which uh, was heartbreaking. Um, so a couple of the cars in Tasmania, for instance, that were very important, um, uh, we just couldn't get them get access to them from the owners who, for one reason or another, kept them locked away in sheds. Um, and, and of course, uh, since the book's been published, since we put a, a hold on, that uh, new material keeps coming up every day. I had a, a call last week from one of the old workers who sent a couple of photographs too late to put in the book. And he said, now that photograph of Gary with that 300 you know he's standing on a box there to make the car look smaller and him look taller. Yeah, so there's some beaut things like that that unfortunately we, we couldn't get in the book. But the stuff that's in there, yeah, a, a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, previously unseen and um, I think, you know, interesting because the whole book's been written from a, a personal viewpoint of the people who were there. It's not an opinion piece. Yeah, it's not a... Um, a blow-by-blow -blow description of every race meeting and every car, technically, and that. But it's really stories from the people who were there, and uh, it's terrific. David, I'm really interested. Um, coming into the, the, the Elfin world, as you've done, you've obviously met a lot of people that you probably wouldn't have um, sought out, and I'm interested in, in learning from you uh, the most interesting experience that you had in 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 that line, who who um, contributed to your understanding in the greatest way, and um, uh, you might like then to follow up with perhaps a memorable story or a, an anecdote or something that specifically stuck in your mind from writing the book. 
Yeah, look, the approach that I took with the book all along was simply this. I wasn't there. So how I started was I need to talk to the people that were. And in the end, I think it was about 52 or 53 interviews I conducted over uh, uh, four or five years putting the book together. And that sort of, for me, pieced together my knowledge of Alphen. And mind you, not everybody agrees on 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 the facts of um, or, or, or otherwise of history. Um, there were several disputes, um, nothing nasty or anything, but you know, several disagreements on who said what and who did what, which is quite natural, of course. And it's it's really no, nobody's trying to muckrake or anything. They're just simply remembering it from their point of view. And in my opinion, as a writer, more than one person can be right about something. They can believe it. It can be true for them, but it's not necessarily how somebody else saw it. Um, Look, you know, it really was people like uh, John Bow and John McCormick who were very big players in the Elfin story who helped piece together um, what Elfin was and what Gary achieved. Um, But it was also... Um, people like Lorraine Cooper who were able to add, you know, that domesticity, if you like, you know, what what was what was Gary like at home? Um, uh, you know, he, uh, he 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 never touched the garden or mowed the lawn or anything like that because um, he believed that it was Lorraine's job to, to do that. His job was to build uh, sports and racing cars. So I, I, I spoke to many, many people. I sought out as many people as I could. Unfortunately, some people died before I could get to them. Frank Maddich was, a, was a, probably the main one. He was very important, especially in the earlier story of Elfin. But unfortunately, he died perhaps six months or so into the, into the project, and I hadn't yet reached him. But I got around to pretty much everybody else, and... Um, they were entertaining, and what I endeavoured to do was I endeavoured to tell their story without me kind of touching it. So I pressed the the, the keyboard, but it's really their their story, and yeah. I, I sort of put it together. So um, you spent countless hours. Is there any one moment that stands out as particularly memorable or humorous or um, that really made this project worth your while doing? I think there were many, but one that sort of sticks out, uh, I'm a bit of a sleuth. I like uh, solving mysteries. And the story of the the 400 sports car was really quite interesting to me. There was some dispute about the origins of the design of the car. Um, Frank Maddich is on record, even though he didn't say it to me, but he's on record speaking with, you know, Auto Action and various motorsport magazines as believing that that he was he came up with the inspiration for what the 400 became which car came first was it chassis number one or chassis number two who did what and the way that I could piece that together was by putting uh, all of the main players into the room metaphorically and I spoke with people like Peter Malloy another person who's now no longer with us Bruce Richardson Laurie O'Neill who owned the Frank Maddich car John Webb and Ron Lambert and the staff at Alphen who were who were alive, and I, I think I've come up with a really super chapter on on that. And um, I'm not sure that we've solved the mystery, but seeing all of the pieces come together was very very satisfying for me. 
two of the more interesting cars in the book, um, for some people anyway, I shouldn't say all people, are the, the two ground effects cars that Gary built, and you're in a unique position, John. You drove both of them in anger. Yes, I did. The I, I honestly can't recall which one he started first, The the but the ground effect era just basically just started, and Gary went to the Long Beach Formula One race, which would have been 79 probably, and came back with all these, you know, ideas and concepts. So he built the Formula Two car for me, which had a golf engine in it uh, that was sort of laid at an angle so that it had downdraft carburetors on it. And and he built the MR9, which was going to be for himself, and he ran it at the Australian Grand Prix 1980 at Calder Park. So it was very advanced and none of us understood what this concept of ground effects and downforce and whatever did really at the time. So at Sandown in 1981, he came to me. I was there driving my Formula 2 car and a sports sedan and he came to me and he said, look, this car's, uh, you know, spooking me. It's all over the road and we ever drive in it. I hadn't driven it prior to that, the, the MR9. So I drove it and it was, it was bloody frightening. It was, and because the, the chassis were so narrow to get the area for the underwings, it was flexing too much. So all I did was reinforce what he'd told me. You had to brake in the middle of the road because you didn't know which way it was going to go next. So, so it flexed the front of the car and the caster went off it. So it had no stability. Anyway, overnight he, he conjured up some bracketry and whatnot, as he would do, and uh, I raced it that weekend, and um, it, it was quite good. I was second to Alfie Costanzo, but uh, one of the rear rocker arms were, were in board, and, and no one understood the loads that would force through these things with that sort of downforce, and it bent the rear rocker arm as I went over the top of Rothman's Rise, they called it then. And the car shot off to the left down the grass and, you know, just barely missed the Armco. And I thought, I thought, I didn't know what had happened. I thought it was my fault. So I was busily trying to make up an excuse as to why I speared off the road. (laughs) And when I got back to the pits, you know, the the, the arm had bent and it was, it was at a weird angle. So it was really, uh, but it was a world-class car. Unfortunately, Gary, you know, passed away when it was still in its developmental phase. And I'd love to, as Bill would, I'm sure, love to see it back out on the track again. But some guy's got it in in Sydney and doesn't seem to have any interest in racing it. I mean, my view is race cars should be raced. Uh, and most elfins that are, existed are still raced, which is fantastic. If we can just have a look at the mind of the, of the race driver, and, and we know you guys operate at a totally different level, but... How do you jump in a in an aluminium Formula Five thousand at one hundred and sixty mile an hour up the back straight when Gary's told you it does weird things and it's likely to punch you off the the end? I mean, I was quite young then, <laughs> as opposed to now. So you know, you you don't uh, think too much about stuff like that. You know, I, I actually raced three cars on that weekend: the five thousand, the Formula Two car, and the sports sedan, which was a a car from. That Peter Fowler, who was part of the Elfin story at one stage, he uh, he built this Cortina with a with a V8 302 Ford in the middle of it somewhere, you know. So I raced three cars in one weekend, didn't think anything of it. Well, you know, you do things like that when you're young. 
Tell us a little bit more about the uh, Ground Effect Formula 2 car. Well, that was a really good car. Like that was the interestingly enough, most of those cars, uh, you know, most contemporary cars of the time had a, a aluminium chassis monocoque, and the rear engine frame was was either bolted on or part of the, the structure like a space frame at the back to hold the engine the gearbox, where the GE225, which was what it, what Gary called it, Ground Effects 225, I don't know what the 25 was for, but anyway, um, I'm sure he had his reasons. Uh, the, the chassis went all the way to the back, to the bulkhead, which was like a, a mono was back in the 60s. So it had quite good strength for its, for its uh, width, a very narrow little car to get more underwing area. It was a really good car. Like, uh, if you go on YouTube, there's a, a race at Sandown, I think it was probably 1980, where I won the race. Uh, Richard Davison was in it. John Smith was in it. There's a few, you know, good drivers. And uh, I got to the front and, and won the race. In fact, I remember passing, uh, I think it was John Smith, on the outside over Rothman's Rise, you know, on the, on the outside. So it was a... And none of us knew anything about this ground effect stuff it was just you know it just had more grip more downforce as you know history has proven is the, the way to go faster john just a quick hypothetical you've got the choice of the entire elfin range and an unlimited budget which elfin would you choose and why well i mean you, bill hemming has got most elfins that are <laughs> most models an example of or, or you know nearly everyone anyway uh I don't know. I, you know, it's difficult to know. I, I've, I don't actually wish to drive the ones I drove. It's like I raced after Elfins. I raced Rolts for a while. It's not like I want to right, drive a Rolt again because I drove them when I was 25 years old. So, you know, stands to reason you're not going to drive them as well. So, um, but I, I'd like to have a drive. I'm sure Bill would let me if I ask him. Um, that the Elfin 400 with a Repco engine in it because, uh, you know, that's too very iconic Australian things, an example of the car, the 400, and of a Australian-built engine, which I, you know, I find amazing, considering when it was done in the 60s before we even had fax machines, you know, so. Um, yeah, so that I'm interested in. I'd love to get the MR9 out of storage and, and prepare it properly and put one of these new 600-horsepower engines in it because it was a really good car. And I know a lot about ground effects and downforce and stuff now, so I could, if it had any issues, I could certainly fix them or get someone to fix them. So, uh, but I haven't driven his Bill's little streamliner, which is a car that was owned new by Jock O'Brien. It's got a Coventry Climax 1100 engine, and my dad used to salivate over that car when it, when Jock O'Brien had it. So I'd love to have a drive in that sometime. In fact, I, I just, I love Elfins, you know. I mean, I was brought up on Elfins. And uh, it was a very sad day when Gary passed away, to be honest. He was only 45 years old, I think. Well, there you go, Bill. Um, JB's putting the acid on you for a couple of couple of drives there. Yeah, it works driver. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like yeah. it. <laughs> now, I dab. In fact, I have offered him a couple of drives in um, the 5000, uh, which he said, I'm never getting in one of them again. And uh, uh, the Formula Junior, which he loves, but um, we just haven't had the opportunity. And, uh, yeah. But we'll get him in there one day. You were joking before about uh, about your racing exploits, but uh, 
at Sandown, you told me you were going faster than JB in the MR8. <laughs> well, things have moved on, yeah, the track services and tyres. and <laughs> I can't remember the lap times we used to do. The track's different now, but um, uh, Bill goes all right. You know, he does denigrate himself a bit as a driver, but, you know, he goes all right. He goes good. Uh, historic racing is about enjoying with the whole thing anyway, you know. Like, you don't get any uh, Formula One offers for driving in a historic race, but you have an awful lot of fun, don't you? A lot of uh, argument too, Bill, about whether these cars should be in a museum or should be raced. What's your view? Well, we know your view because you, you race it, but you might like to talk to that. Well, and it's in a museum. I think uh, I think both. They should be available to the public um, and someone like Gary Cooper should be celebrated. I mean, in any other country in the world, there'd be brass statues of Gary Cooper on the corner and Jack Braddon and things like that. Australia's a funny place. You've got to kick it footy or hit a tennis ball to, get recognised here. So um, uh, the cars, the elephants especially, should be out there running. Um, 75% of all the elephants that Gary made are actually competing in historic racing, which is remarkable. And uh, I think there should be more, and it should be recognised for what it is, yeah, the brand. Just back on the book, David, um, all your other efforts uh, had great production values. It's it's very important to you, and you've, you've really done a a great job on the production of this book and done Gary's memory proud. Tell us a little bit about how you approached that. Well, I think uh, Bill was on board from the beginning and he was great to work with on that point. I think I was pretty firm in the beginning and I said, Bill, if we're going to do this, I want to do it. I want to do a beautiful book. And I think he took half a second and said, well, let's let's do that. So Bill is pretty special in that way. He's spent a lot of money and a lot of time on this project. But once you see the end result, I think you'll, I think anybody would look at that book and say it was absolutely world class in its production. So we think it's a, a great testament to Gary and Alphen Sports Cars. We sourced photos from all sorts of places, uh, lots of historic stuff, of course, because that's, uh, you know, that's when uh, elephants were running when they were new, and that's very, very important. But what we decided to do early on was to make a museum piece. In other words, if somebody landed uh, on Earth from Mars and opened up the book, is there everything to know about Elfin in there. Now, you know, obviously there's not every dot point possible, but every car is covered in the book. So every car gets its own chapter. And at the end of each chapter, there's a there's an eight-page uh, essay, if you like. And most of the time, we were able to engage a professional photographer to photograph the cars, sometimes in a studio, sometimes on a racetrack, sometimes outdoors. But there is a there's just a beautiful series of photographs of every example that's sort of uh, covered in the book. There were one or two uh, cars, as Bill mentioned earlier, that we couldn't get hold of. And sometimes that's difficult when you're talking about a mark like Alphen because there were a number of models where one or two or three cars were made. And in this case, there were a couple of um, cars that we weren't able to photograph, but we had similar uh, uh, model represented. So um, we've got a we've got a really good museum piece, something that we think will stand the test of time. If somebody wants to know something about Elfin, it's in there. It was interesting because this this came after the um, um, uh, Barry 
Catford and um, John Blandon book, Elephant Australia's Sports and Racing Cars, which was done in 1976, I think. No, sorry, 1996. Um and that was a book. It was very important to us, us elfin people anyhow, because it was the first time someone had documented to that extent. The trouble was, if you showed a non-car person the book, their eyes would glaze over because it was very factual, black and white, very detailed in uh, race meetings and things like that. But David and I wanted a book that you could show a non-car person and they'd be impressed. So when people say, what do you mean elfin? We could show them this book and they'd say, oh, wow, isn't that fantastic? Whereas we couldn't with the publications that were done to date. There are three levels of publication, what we're calling standard, limited edition and ultimate edition. And they're at different price points and for different types of Alphan enthusiasts. The standard book is a beautiful 700-page book with a French-folded um, dust jacket, uh, a bookmark and beautiful production. The limited edition book comes in a slipcase with um, a reproduction Alphan chassis plate that can be stamped with any number uh, that the purchaser chooses. So if, if they have um, a type 400 uh, 661, then we can stamp it BB661 or whatever they prefer. That's signed and they're limited to 350 examples. And then for those that sort of want the ultimate, we to order uh, are producing uh, what we're calling the ultimate edition. It's the, the book in a special metal case with some original tools donated by John Webb. So in other words, if you have a, an aluminium-bodied Alphan car, then some of the tools supplied with that book are very likely to, to have been used in making your actual car, which is pretty special and something you can't really buy. The case itself is made from genuine uh, Alphan panels from, uh, from, from a crashed car. While we're here at the Alphan Heritage Centre, Bill, um, tell us a little bit about what you do here with the centre and, and how you keep racing cars on the road. I'm glad you asked me and not my wife this question because uh, every night I get home she said, what have you been doing all day? And uh, I choose not to answer her. But uh, basically we're, we're, yeah, it's really preparation of the cars for the next meeting. It's keeping the, the centre in a presentable format because it's open to car clubs and public and everything. Uh, we're doing a lot of repairs of modern Elfins now of the, um, uh, the era that we're, myself and Nick owned the company. So a lot of the V8, the General Motors V8 engine cars that uh, tend to run into trees because they've got too much power. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we do all the repairs, crash repairs and tuning and for those cars. I've got a couple of ex-Elfin employees who come in um, every day for love because it's a bit of a men's shed. And uh, yeah, we solve all the politics of Australia and then uh, tinker with the cars. The history of the V8 cars, you were involved in the development of them. Can you ex explain how they came to be and um, what what you contributed to them? Uh, in one word, money. Right? <laughs> but uh, essentially what happens when Nick and I bought the company uh, from uh, Murray Richards, he'd started work on a little four-cylinder Elfin Clubman um, using Jim Hardman to do the chassis and um, 
uh, using styling cues from the original 1960s Elfin Clubman. Uh, so we inherited his plans for that, and uh, our first job was to get that f to fruition and uh, registrable and compliance and everything. And that took uh, about 18 months, basically. And uh, it was kicking along quite well, and we sold about 70 of them, but it was a yeah, nice little cottage industry. They were only made to order, and we yeah, made tuppence halfpenny on each car, so yeah, we weren't going broke. And uh, one day this tall, skinny guy walked in and said, oh, look, I want to get a clubman, and it's got to be Australian, so I guess it's got to be an elfin. And he said, but I don't really like you know, the, the styling of them. Uh, so he was politely told to bugger off, right? And uh, he buggered off, and he came back two weeks later with some sketches on a bit of paper and introduced himself, and it was Mike Simcoe, who at that stage was the um, um, design director at GMH, at Fisherman's Bend. And uh, we looked at it, we thought, yeah, maybe maybe you're right, maybe it could be styled differently. <laughs> so he, he came back with these designs that were going to go on to the four-cylinder Toyota engine car. Uh, but he said, he said, look, if you promise to put it into production, I'll do all the styling properly at GM. So he went ahead and did that with his staff of 70 and the facilities at uh, Fisherman's Bend. It was just outstanding, right? They uh, whereas if we styled a car, we'd uh, bend up a bit of wire and make a paper mache model and then you know, bend a bit of metal to look like that and you know, stand back and say, oh, yeah, that's okay. They'd uh, do their sketches and plug it into a computer and you know, put it into a robot and go home at night and overnight the robot had carved this bit of clay. So you came back next morning and there's a car sitting there in clay and covered it in foil and from 10 feet away you couldn't tell it wasn't a car. And then they put it in this forty foot by uh, forty meter by forty meter quadrangle in Fisherman's Bend, on a turntable, and they'd photograph it with three hundred cameras at different angles against different backdrops, and then go and study those photos to make sure the shut lines and the shadow lines and everything else were good. We thought, oh, okay, that's that's how you style a car. But when we saw that that prototype clay model, it was you know, far too good for a little four-cylinder car that was coming out of compliance uh, emissions um, uh, compliance anyhow so we said oh let's put a Holden V6 in it and then we thought hang on yeah they've got a V8 yeah <laughs> let's put a V8 in it <laughs> so we uh, did the car totally the wrong way around yeah we, we started with the the body and the engine and we had to design the the chassis to fit between the body <laughs> and the mechanics which is a stupid stupid way to go about it it was us about basically and um but uh, we, we we did that and uh with the help of holden yeah we were able to use lang lang for their uh testing of the car we used their emissions lab to get through the emissions controls and that was a, another story but uh um we finally got this thing on the road and uh launched it at the 2004 melbourne motor show on the holden stand so all of this stuff we couldn't have done without mike simcoe who's uh, suitably been promoted to boss of styling for GM Worldwide, of course, sitting in Detroit. Um, and uh, I claim credit for that because without the Alphon, he wouldn't have been recognised. Yeah? <laughs> so, uh, yes, we, we, yeah, when you say I had a bit to do with it, yeah, we, we, uh, we, we gave birth to the thing from um, yeah, conception through to <laughs> the actual birth. Uh, it was a big journey and a very expensive journey. And... Uh, at that stage, yeah, we were going broke at a great rate because it cost millions of dollars, even with all the help Holden gave us. And um, the only way we could recoup that was to sell the company, basically. And that's when Tom Walkinshaw 
walked in the door and said, um, I'd like to buy a share. And uh, At that stage, we said, well, no, you're not going to get a share because it'd be like a tail wagging the dog, yeah, because you're too powerful a figure. So you either buy it all or nothing. And so he eventually agreed to buy it all, and uh, uh, which made enormous sense at the time because he had a good dealership network. He had factories in India that could churn out things like just the gear knob, it would cost us $60 to turn up an aluminium gear knob and thread it and put a badge on it and polish it. He'd get the same thing, identical thing, done in India for $2.70. Right? So uh, when he took over, he was able to get the price of the cars down by 20 grand immediately. And uh, uh, he was going along well and built about another 30 of them. We, we did about 30, another 30. And then he died here in the... True tradition of uh, Elfin owners, he <laughs> unfortunately died early and the whole project um, got put on the back burner at Holden Special Vehicles then and uh, it's just sitting in a couple of 40-foot containers at HSV, rotting, which is a tragedy. And uh, that's because Tom had the, the foresight and the vision. Uh, he was great to deal with, yeah, despite what uh, his... Uh, uh, reputation <laughs> says, yeah, we found him fantastic to deal with, but when he went, uh, no one else at HSV had his vision for the brand. John, the um, the V8 car is the one that I know best, mostly probably because of the publicity. Um, you've had a hand in it. To what extent did you develop the vehicle and contribute to it? Did you like driving it? Oh, I honestly cannot take any credit for any of that. Um, I have driven it briefly with some of Bill's owners at, at a track day, but uh, no, I didn't have any. I would have loved to have been involved in it, to be honest, but, and, you know, as a concept, it's, it's a pretty clever concept. Um, you know, a little light two-seat sports car with a nice aluminium V8 in the front of it, so, but I didn't, I can't, unfortunately. I'm good at taking credit for things, but in this case, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Yeah, we, we were desperate to get uh, Bowie to sort of get involved with it because of his history with Elfin. But of course, at the time, we were working with General Motors. So uh, yes. we had to uh, put up with uh, you know, people like Peter Brock and Larry Perkins instead. Ham McConville um, did a lot. Uh, Brocky drove it a few times, did a couple of rallies in it. And uh, uh, he was involved in the press launch and that. Um, Larry Perkins uh, drove it. Um, this is the New Zealander guy, uh, Greg Murphy. Greg Murphy, yeah. He, uh, he, we all did track days out at Calder. Um, but they're all, all rushed, and you know, all, all, the feedback was fantastic. But you know, we just didn't have the time and the facilities to do all the shocker rebound tests and changes and everything else that, that needed to be done in the time. Right? Uh, whereas by now, if we had a kept Elfin and kept developing it with people like John Brown that we could have got that and it would be a, a far better car. Yeah, Some of the owners, of course, have, have done that and they're terrific now. They're, it's chalk and cheese between the cars that they bought and the cars that they've developed them into just with simple uh, um, shocker and, and spring brakes and things like that. But uh, John would have been a much better deal there but because he was driving Ford, we actually unfortunately couldn't go. And uh, since then, of course, John's driven a few and he's really pointed out a few areas that he could have and we could have made major improvements with. But, yeah, that's life. Bill, how did the aero come about then? Because how many did you make of those? Like whose idea, concept, 
Streamliner, yeah, that's it. Yeah, sorry, Streamliner. Uh, the original concept for the new V8 um, Elfins was basically to do a Clubman shape um, yeah, with the, the modern um, Simcoe body. But uh, uh, about 12 weeks before the Melbourne Motor Show, when the car was launched, Simcoe came to us with another drawing on a bit of paper. He was good at that, again, in Elfin tradition. And it was a fully enclosed version um, that we just loved. And so we called that the Streamliner. And we went from 12 weeks before the show from his sketch on a bit of paper to a running prototype in 12 weeks. We had uh, six of our guys and about four Holden guys locked away like battery chickens working 24 hours a day. And uh, literally we started the engine at four o'clock in the morning of the Melbourne Motor Show launch. We know it was done in, in secret here behind closed doors and a lot of these projects are done behind closed doors even at Holden or Ford or wherever they happened. Uh, did the big brass at Holden know about it? Um, not everyone that should have <laughs> knew about it. Um, Simcoe was a very good salesman within Holden and uh, he got it through the managing directors because um, over that period there was about three different Holden MDs that came in from the States and most of them accepted Simcoe's recommendations because they didn't know any better basically but I remember at the time with the launch the MD then he he said why why am I launching this car on the Holden stand <laughs> so we gave him a sheet of paper with 10 reasons why it was good and <laughs> he just read off that bit of paper and it was fine um, so yes certainly the manufacturing guys uh, uh, knew Ian McCleave and uh, uh, yeah, the, the marketing guys, but yeah, not everyone. But um, Simcoe organised people like Tim Pemberton, yeah, the PR guy, to to help launch and things like that. So there was, I don't think they realised how much they helped us at board level. <laughs> um, but John Stevenson, who was the motor racing manager for Holden at the time, he'd he'd organise engines for us and uh, got uh, Gary Rogers involved with a bit of chassis development and. We're starting to build a car up for uh, Le Mans, actually, um, based on a, a Gary Rogers chassis with a, um, a streamliner body suitably modified. But uh, then it, we pulled the plug when Holden ran out of money, basically. Yeah. Bill, um, you clearly have a great fondness for this mark. Um, one of the small things that um, I'm interested in is the name Elfin itself, it's an evocative name, but it bears no relationship to any part of Gary Cooper's history that I know. Do you know where the name came from? Yeah, well, it's it's everything to do with Gary Cooper's history. Um, uh, if you look at the the dictionary, yeah, Elfin is a, a small, mischievous creature with magical powers, right? Um, in fact, when the Elfin brand was sold by Mary Richards, this... Uh, Underwear manufacturer wanted to buy it because he, he wanted to use that slogan on his uh, on his underwear. Yeah, small mischievous creature. I thought that was great. <laughs> but uh, what it goes back to is uh, when uh, Gary was a kid, he used to race tether planes. You know, um, uh, those little aeroplane diesel one point cc diesel powered uh, uh, racing planes on a bit of string. And um, uh, one of the motors they used was a motor called Elfin from England. Uh, that were quite a big manufacturer of model aeroplane motors then. And so, you know, 20 years later, when he got involved with cars, um, a few of them sat around and uh, thought of names, and a lot of them were Aboriginal names and everything else, but um, Gary said, oh, no, I wanted to be Elfin. So 
against the advice of some of his mates on the committee <laughs> when they started the company, they went ahead with that. They've all since come round. And uh, one of his mates is a bloke called um, Bruce Wilkinson, who was an artist, graphic artist, and he designed the badge, the Elfin Sports Cars badge, which I think is a fantastic mm. badge. And uh, that was good as a as a little aside. I was at the Sydney Motor Show one day uh, wearing my Elfin shirt, and this woman came up and grabbed my shirt. She said, "What's this?" I said, "It's a car company." She said, "I know that. My husband designed the the badge." And I said, oh, are you Mrs. Wilkinson? And she said, well, not anymore, because he was better at drawing than he was in bed. <laughs> and she let go of my shirt and walked away. <laughs> Just on those, those later model cars, David, and you said that was your first experience with the Mark. Um, they were road cars, road registered, but not the first time that a number plate was seen on an Elfin car. Well, the very, the very early um, the streamliners, for instance, were driven on the road quite, uh, quite regularly. Um, in the day when people, you know, would drive to the racetrack and do a couple of laps and drive back home, um, people drove road-registered elephants, yes. In fact, David, uh, Brian Thompson, who went on to become um, sports sedan champion and raced a few elephants, he actually bought a, stream, uh, a Melilla early on and registered and used it as his wedding car. In Shepparton. And uh, for his 80th birthday, he bought himself a new streamliner. Bill, you've had access to uh, every model of the uh, the Alphen brand, and I'm assuming you've driven them all at some point in time. What's the, the one that you're fondest of? Gee, that's a hard one. I mean, uh, everyone says, why don't you sell all the cars and keep one or two? And if I knew which ones to keep, I'd do it. Um, certainly the Streamliner, which was my first Dolphin, is, uh, I just think it's absolutely gorgeous. But um, uh, I just fell in love with it. I mean, I always wanted a D-type Jaguar, and the Streamliner sort of reminded me a bit of that shape. Um, I think now my favourite car is the 400, which is probably my least favourite car to drive. It's a pig of a thing to drive. <laughs> but, gee, it looks good. It looks fantastic. Um, and the 5000, which scared me witless, right, when I first started running it, I actually quite enjoy it now. Um, I only drive it 7 tenths, yeah, on a good day, but uh, it, it's wonderful. I think to drive it at 10 tenths, it sent me back to the nut house, but yeah. So it's a tough one. Um, I'm sorry, I can't do that, yeah. They're, they're all good. Just quickly on that 5000 again, Bill, I think it was 2018, you went to Laguna Seca in California for a big Formula 5000 meeting, what was it like taking the Australian Elfin over there and racing it? Well, it's terrific because my particular car was a car that was built for Vern Schupen back in 77. And uh, after a couple of years in Australia, he took it to America and uh, rebodied it and ran it as a, a single-seater Can-Am car. So it had run at Laguna Seca and Road America and... Uh, yeah, about uh, six different circuits around the States. So it was sort of going home again, if you like, for that car. Uh, got a lot of interest from people because it, it does look different to every other 5,000. Um, like the Lola's, uh, probably the prettiest one, but they're you know, like bums, everyone's got one sort of thing. Um, whereas the, the Elfin is a very distinctive looking car. Um, the only uh, problem I had over there was... Um, uh, I had yeah a lot of women had come up and asked to be photographed sitting in the car and so you'd chat to them and be nice to them and they'd yeah, flutter their eyelids but 
and you'd sort of say, oh, look, yeah, I'm, I'm too old to take any interest. Yeah, on your way, love, get the next one in. But at that meeting, there was um, Kenny Smith, who was 77 or something then, and he was running it, and they, they mixed up the number of his car, and they kept saying, oh, there's 77-year-old Ken Smith here, and coming third in number 11. And these girls had come back afterwards and say, oh, I didn't realise you were 77 because my car was 11, right? So <laughs> that was the uh, the biggest problem with running in America. But uh, it was a terrific meeting. There was 60 Formula 5000s around Laguna Seca. It was just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. So the book, David, is it's it's fantastic. It's almost here. We recommend they do get in early because it is limited edition. And uh, once they're gone, there won't be any more. People can order them at alphanspiritofspeed.com.au. Yes, and especially with the limited edition version, we expect that to go quite quickly. So we encourage people to get on and, and, and order. All right, and just before we go, if we can uh, just get um, your favourite story from the book. Um, tough choice, no doubt. Uh, well, um, I have, have many memories of... Of Elfin in, in general and Gary, but um, in 79 and 80, I raced the Formula 5000 in the Australian Gold Star, and my the biggest rival was Alf Costanzo, who you know I'm still friends with. And um, we Gary used to transport the car around in a in a truck, everyone called it the fruit truck because it looked like it should be selling fruit, not carting a, a race car, but it, it was an old D series Ford with a you know, tray on the back and a bit of canvas around it. And we raced in Tasmania once at Simmons Plains and uh, I won the race from Alfie and I passed him under the yellow flag though. So if ever you see him, and I got away with it is more the point because I was Tasmanian and the st- all the stewards were Tasmanian. Um, but if ever you see him, and you, I'm sure you'll see him at Phillip Island or somewhere. Ask him if he, uh, how he went at Simmons Plains when he raced the 5,000, because he's never forgotten it. Never. <laughs> I used to put people up to, you know, go and say, what did you think of racing John Bow at Simmons Plains? And he'd go, oh, he passed me under the yellow flag, the bastard. <laughs> and he still does it. <laughs> 30 years later. No, I had a great time with Elfin. I really did. Still, still love them. One amusing story that I can remember, Darren, amongst many, was this, a story told by Mary Middleton. She was in hospital, uh, lay, laying down on her hospital bed, telling me this story over the telephone of a time when her and her husband, Chris, went to Gary and Lorraine's house in, in Adelaide at the time when Gary was designing the MR9. And Gary was a non-drinker and... Uh, but also enjoyed drinking apple juice, non-alcoholic apple cider, if you like. Mary thought she was doing the right thing by going to a bottle shop and buying some apple cider for Gary and bringing it around along with a cake or something, some flowers or whatever. But she picked up a bottle of alcoholic um, cider and she took it around and it was uh, it was about 45 degrees, as, as Mary recalls. And they're having dinner and Gar- Gary's in the heat, uh, is just sculling this apple cider one glass after another. And at one point la- after the meal, they walk into the lounge room and nailed into the carpet of the lounge room was the one-to-one, a full-size shape of the MR9, like an aerial view of the MR9. And they're all sort of stepping over it 
and um, and Mary's looking at it and says, "Oh, Gary, it looks a little bit like an Alfa Romeo." And and Gary, sort of, um, so, you know, somewhat embarrassed, said, oh, "Maybe a little bit." Um, anyway, so Mary gets talking to Lorraine, and Chris and Gary are having a chat. And then Mary looks over, and Gary's lying on his side, absolutely stone drunk, <laughs> and uh, laughing his head off. And um, look, the book, the book is full of those kind of anecdotes. Not from me, but from the people that actually lived it at the time. Bill, um, a lot of effort and time has gone into creating this book. What's the most memorable part of it for you? Look, it comes back to the people. Um, This book has given us access to some fantastic personalities and uh, it really comes out. Like, yeah, yeah, Bowie, for instance. I mean, without the book and Alfin, I wouldn't have had the rapport that we've got uh, with with John um, and and that goes all the way down the line to some you know some people you don't get a rapport with but yeah <laughs> uh, but basically it's really opened the doors there and uh, up until this book I think um, my claim to fame was the only person in the world who ever made money out of uh, Tom Walkinshaw but now the book has given me a, a whole second string to uh, some sort of renown <laughs> Well, the book really is fantastic. It's a credit to you, David and, and Bill. We can't recommend it highly enough. We have been fortunate enough to uh, to see a little preview of it. It will go quickly. Elfinspiritofspeed.com.au. That's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>